your Bibles to Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah chapter 29. So on page 656, if you're using that blue Bible, and I would encourage you to turn there and follow along with us. Jeremiah 29, 1 through 7 is what we're going to read. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to Yahweh on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. And now let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1 on page 1014 in that blue Bible, as we begin a new series, uh, Memory, I had to think about it a minute, (laughs) Memory, Manners, and Mandates for God's Minority People. It's going to be a 24-part series, I'll tell you more in a minute. We're going to read right now 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood, may mercy or may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So all that I've read to you in the Old Testament and the New Testament is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may grace and peace be multiplied to us this day. Amen. You may be seated. So we're beginning this new series. It's a 24-part series. We're allowing a little fudge in there for a couple of Sundays. We have a little one-off thing here or there. And so this will take us probably through May, and you can expect that. So this is a good, a good time, as I mentioned in the letter this week, for you to spend a couple of weeks actually reading both First and Second Peter two or three times if you can. Now, my friends, way, way back in the dark ages, you know, somewhere around 1989, Stanley Hauerwas, who was an Anabaptist theologian and ethicist, ethicist, and William Willimon, a conservative Methodist bishop who is now retired, joined up and wrote a book that echoes one of the major emphases in 1 Peter. The book was titled, Resident Aliens, Resident Aliens, Life in the Christian Colony. And in the opening chapter, Willimon recounts a conversation with a Jewish rabbi that he had in, in, there in Greenville, South Carolina, whose synagogue was right next door to his church. He tells the story 
how they were sitting down together for coffee and conversing and during the conversation, the rabbi remarked, quote, it's tough to be a Jew in Greenville. We are forever telling our children, that's fine for everyone else, but it's not fine for you. You're special. You're different. You are a Jew. You have a different story, a different set of values, end of quotation. Now, I imagine most of you Christian parents have had similar conversations with your kids. I know that we did. And if you have not had those conversations with your kids, if they're still around, it's time to have them. We are different. That's something of one of the main sentiments that is running through First and Second Peter. And we'll pick it up as we examine memory, manners, and mandates for God's minority people. Now, that title encompasses both First and Second Peter. Most of the memory stuff will come out in Second Peter. When you read it, you'll see why. And so, First Peter is really more about the manners and mandates of God's minority people. So, I'm just letting you know the big picture here. Now, my friends, as we start out, I just want, before we actually get into the sermon, and by the way, if you're visiting, there are sermon notes on the back of your worship guide, and there are some questions there for your care groups tonight, and some homework. Yes, I gave you homework. All the teachers should be happy that I gave homework. But before we actually get deep into the sermon, I just want to point out the very beginning of 1 Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice that as the letter begins, it launches out with the author's credentials. He's writing like most people wrote letters in that day. Usually when we write our credentials or our name, where do we put them in a letter? Where do we put them in an email? At the end, right. So this is how they began. They began at the beginning. So you would know as you read this letter, this is who's talking to you. Here's his or her credentials, whatever the case is. And so Peter lays that out. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important for us to remember before we go too far that there were actually two groups of apostles in the New Testament and the early church. Two groups of apostles. The word apostle means sent out. These are the sent out ones. These are people sent out, commissioned with a specific mission. And so there were those who I like to call the little a apostles, right? Little a apostles, lowercase a apostles of the churches. They are the sent out ones from the churches. And so when we were working our way through 2 Corinthians a million years ago, in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 23, Paul mentions them. Quote, and as for our brothers, they are messengers, the ESV translated, but it's apostolos, it's a, apostles. They are apostles of the church to the glory of Christ. Who were these people? They were people with very limited authority. They were men, specifically here, vetted by their congregation, and then sent out with their church's credentials to represent their congregation. They were certified as reliable men who would ensure that none of the monies that Paul collected for this donation he was taking to Jerusalem, that none of the monies would be misused. They were part of the security and part of the accountability team. That was their limited authority commission. Those are the little A apostles. Everybody get that? Little A apostles? Then there's the big A apostles, the capital A apostles. Who in the world were those? They were the sent out ones, but they were handpicked specifically by Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
They were the hand-picked, sent-out representatives of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the capital A Apostles, so that he would, they would speak for Jesus and their words were his words. As Jesus himself said in John 13, verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, etc., So those are two classes of apostles, and notice that Peter then is one of those hand-picked, capital A, apostles, one of those hand-picked spokesmen for Jesus. His words are Jesus' words. But further, stop at the very first word of the letter. Peter. Peter. This is Peter the impetuous. Peter the hard-headed. Just go back to the Gospels. The Jesus betraying Peter. But this is Peter restored by Jesus with a thrice fold, do you love me? And feed my sheep. Do you love me? Take care of my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. So my friends, Peter has personally experienced much of what he will pen in this letter. That's important to remember the very first part of the letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And now he gets into the greeting in verse 1 and 2, the rest of verse 1 into verse 2. And notice that, and I just want you to see right up front, he, Peter claims that we are God's minority people. Notice that as Peter addresses these believers, he begins with who they are, verse 1, and then he will move into why they are what they are or who they are in verse 2. So who are they? Look at verse 1. Those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in these regions listed in Pontus, Galatia, Asia, Bithynia, and so forth. Which, by the way, those regions encompass most of modern-day Turkey, and I've lived in a, or been in a few of those as well. So those are the districts that are uh, encompassing most of modern-day Turkey, but it would be almost as if Peter would have written... To us, and we're to say to the elect exiles of the dispersion who live in Cleveland and um, uh, Oklahoma and Potawatomi and whatever county, right? It's just that kind of thing. It's that language. But notice that they are the elect exiles of the dispersion. They're the diaspora, the dispersed. Now, some will take that and say, well, he's talking only to Jewish Christians. Well, he's not. When you get to chapter 4 which we'll read in a minute, verse 3 through 5, you realize he's not talking to Jewish Christians. He's talking to Jews and Gentiles who have come to believe in Jesus in all of those regions in modern-day Turkey. So it's interesting. He calls them the diaspora, the dispersed. He calls them the elect exiles. What is Peter doing? Peter is taking the Old Testament language of God's exiled people scattered to the four winds And he is now imposing it upon the Christians. You are those people. He will take Old Testament Israel language many times in 1st and 2nd Peter and he will impose it upon Christians. That's instructive, but that'll have to wait for another sermon. Notice then that God's people are dispersed. Now, maybe they they weren't literally uprooted and shipped off to some other land. But they find themselves, as we often find ourselves, a minority people wherever we are. 
I mean, later he will call them. In chapter 2, 11, he will call them the immigrants or sojourners is the language he uses, but that means immigrants or expatriates or refugees, the sojourners. Now, all that talk conjures up numerous pictures for us. The idea that God's people are a minority people who are refugees, who are immigrants. I mean... Most immigrants, if you've ever run across immigrants and talked to them, spend any time just listening to them, you realize that they come to a majority culture, a different culture, they come to a different country with their own language, customs, habits, and taboos that often look very weird to the majority culture. I bet you if Lindsay were to tell you about Italy, she would tell you about all those funny things. Our time in Turkey and our time spent in Germany, we have lots of experiences with that. Well, you look a little peculiar because you have different habits and customs and language. But immigrants often feel that all eyes are on them because they're a little peculiar. As they walk down the street, as they go shop at the marketplace, as they go visit the local park with their kids. And Peter is saying, that's us. That's you. God's minority people, his immigrants. And as Peter, and Peter has the audacity to call believers, immigrants, sojourners, exiles, or to use a phrase from the King James out of Exodus 2, strangers in a strange land. But I want you to notice that Peter also seems to me very clearly connecting these people, these believers, these people of God, he is connecting them to the people of Jeremiah 29 that we just read. To whom the Lord declares and says, you are exiles whom I have sent into exile. He'll say that twice, verse 4, Jeremiah 29, verse 4 and verse 7. And so First Peter then seems to me very obviously to be a first century evaluation of how Jeremiah 29 actually works out with, with God's Christ-loyal people. And so listen again to these words and think about how Peter is actually, if you haven't read 1 Peter, go read it. But as you do so, you'll begin to tease out and see how Peter is actually applying Jeremiah 29. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the shalom, it says in the Hebrew. Seek the shalom, the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf for in its shalom you will find your shalom. And Peter's taking that pattern and he is bringing it into the New Testament in 1 Peter. But further, my friends, they are, notice, they are elect exiles. To those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in all these regions. Notice that they are elect. They are the chosen immigrants. They're not the choosy. They're the chosen. And yet, they're chosen for what? Well, Surely and clearly, they're chosen as you read 1 Peter. They're chosen as you are chosen for salvation. Chosen to an inheritance that is reserved in heaven and is incorruptible. Chosen to obtain the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. That's just verses 3 3 through 9, which we'll look at next week. Ah, but more than this. They're chosen to be, chapter 2, verse 9, 10... 
They're chosen to be God's race of people. A peculiar ethnicity. Jews and Gentiles now become a new race in Jesus Christ. They're chosen to be God's royal priesthood. They're chosen to be God's holy nation. They're chosen to be God's precious treasure who proclaim the excellencies of God in a dark and dismal world. So, dear friends, we are, and we need to own this and recognize this, we are God's minority people. Even if we ethnically, linguistically, and culturally are from the majority culture around us, once you become a Christian, you are no longer the majority. You are now God's hand-picked, chosen, elect minority people. We may well live in our present homeland where we grew up, where we got married, where we chased crawdags in the creek, where we voted, where we paid taxes, where we went to school, where we graduated, and all those things. And yet, because of God's choosing us, He has made us His minority people. He has made us His strangers in a strange land. Now, of the many things that that does to us, of the many ways that this impacts us, it should at the least always bring us to come to be sensitive to and appreciate and empathize with other minority people, other immigrants, other expatriates, other displaced people. If you paid attention as we are reading the law from Exodus 22, you will notice right in the middle of that section, God says, by the way, do not oppress or mistreat other immigrants because you were my immigrants there in Egypt. God will say it again in Exodus 23, the same exact thing. He will say, you shall not oppress the the sojourner, the immigrant. You know the heart of a sojourner. For you were sojourners in Egypt. And then in Leviticus 25, verse 23, He will say, and here I'm putting you in this land, but this is not your land, it's my land. You're immigrants in my land. And so, it should make us appreciate and empathize with, in some extent... Others who are minority groups and immigrants, expatriates, and so forth. God's minority people. Well, how in the world did we get into such a predicament? How did we become God's chosen refugees and exiles? How did we become God's minority people? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to spend the rest of the sermon telling you. But in a nutshell, by grace alone. By grace alone. And so you look at verse 2 where he is actually laying out how we got to be what we have been made to be. He talks about us being the foreknown minority. He talks about us being the sanctified minority. He talks about us being the obedient, atoned minority. And he talks about us and shows how we are the prayed up minority. This is how we got into this. So let's just work our way through verse 2. The foreknown minority. You know, that's the punch of the statement. As you pull together verse 1 to verse 2, you can't miss it. Elect exiles of the dispersion according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We were made, Peter is saying, we were made 
elect exiles, God's minority people, by God knowing us from eternity, foreknown by God the Father. By God cherishing us before time began. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10. So you can write the reference down if you want to go there, that's great. But 2 Timothy 1, verse 9 and 10, Paul writes, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. God didn't look down the corridors of time and say, Oh, look, Jake's going to believe in me, and I like Jake. He's tall and handsome. Yeah, I'll choose Jake. He didn't say that. Not according to our works. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which were given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. When? When? Before the ages began, but has now been made manifest by the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, etc. That's what Peter is talking about here. This foreknowledge, this forecherishing, this foreloving. We have been made God's minority people by God loving us from times past before time began. And cherishing us by grace alone. By God for knowing, God for loving, God for cherishing us, He has made us who we are now, His elect exiles. We are the foreknown minority. Just as our Lord Jesus was foreknown. If your Bible is open to 1 Peter 1, drop your eyeballs to verse 20. He was foreknown, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Just as a father forecherished his son from all eternity, foreknown. He has foreknown you. Isn't that amazing? That's heartwarming. But dear friends, more than that, it also reminds us that God has also known before it all happened what our situation, our setting, and our circumstance would be. He's foreknown us, so he foreknew, he knew ahead of time even all the things we'd go through. In other words, God does not sit in heaven and watch Fox News or MBC, MSNBC and go, Oh my goodness! Ah! I didn't see it coming! I mean, that heartwarming? There is a, there's a, a resilience-building aspect of that. God knew. And He made us His minority people in this circumstance, in this situation, whatever it is. It aids us with some resilience as we move along, slogging on as, a, as strangers in a strange land, which Peter is going to unpack, starting in verse 3, as we move on. The foreknown minority... But further, dear friends, God has placed us inside something, inside something that is bigger than we could have obtained as part of a a majority society. He's put us inside of something far bigger than we could have obtained if we were part of a majority society. He's made us the sanctified minority. Notice how verse 2 goes on. You're like the exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. In the sanctification of the Spirit. We're made the elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. 
Now that preposition in can often mean, and does rightly mean, most times, in union with or solidarity with. That's how Paul often uses it for 130-something times in the New Testament. You are in Christ, in Jesus. You're in solidarity. But I like to think of in a little bit more peculiar. I want you to think about a fish for a moment. When is a fish thriving? Is it when it's out of its element and over on the bank or in a big mud puddle somewhere? Is that where it's thriving? Now, what's it doing over there in that mud puddle or over there on the, on the side of the bank? Those of you who have fished and done this, you know what I'm talking about. You're guilty like I am. Right? They're just flopping their tails and their gills are opening and shutting and their eyeballs are staring you guilty. You're killing me! Right? And that's how it feels when you do that. Where does a fish thrive? It thrives in the water. Notice there's a union there and a place. It thrives in the water. Think about a red-tailed hawk. I just thought about this because there's so many I'm I'm seeing recently. When do they impress you the most? They look pretty regal when they're on top of those streetlights up there, standing there like this. But when do they impress you the most? When are they really flourishing and thriving? When they're in the air, in the atmosphere, soaring. You are God's elect exiles and minority people in sanctification of the Spirit. There's a union, there's a place here. But part of what makes us as minority people is that we live in the atmosphere of the Holy Spirit's holiness and His sanctifying work. And Peter's going to bring this out and make hay out of this further on in this first chapter. For example, when he quotes God the Father in verse 15, Be holy as I am holy. Or dropping down to verse 22, Having purified your hearts, love one another earnestly with a pure heart. And he's going to stick to that theme, often weaving in and out of it through much of this letter. This holy and hallowing atmosphere will make us peculiar. It will make us peculiar. We will become, it will make us, we will become a bit odd to our majority society. So just go to, with me, two places in 1 Peter, just so I can show you. Look at chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as immigrants, refugees, as a minority, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among the majority culture. Keep your conduct honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. You'll look a little peculiar. The same thing when you get to chapter 4, verses 3 and 5. If you'll look at 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 5. Peter reminds these believers of their past life. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles, the majority culture, want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. And with respect to this, 
They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Very often as Christian parents, we will have to have that conversation with our kids. Honey, whatever they're doing out there, that's their business. But for us, we don't live that way. And that's how we need to talk sometimes to each other. Well, my friends... It's the Spirit's doing that we are and will always be until Jesus returns and the new heavens and new earth come. That we are and we will always be God's minority people, His select refugees, His chosen immigrants, His elect exiles. Because we have been made those things in the sanctification of the Spirit. But even more, we have been made His obedient, atoned minority. So notice how verse 2 continues on. You're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for... And he says for twice here. Here's a purpose statement, or here's the aim, here's the goal of all of this. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of His blood. Obedient, atoned minority. For is this unto this aim, unto this end kind of language where we thrive, we muscle up in our obedience to Jesus our Savior who by His blood, never get this out of place here, who by His blood has atoned and covered over our sin while ransoming us from our futile ways that we have learned from our majority culture. Just drop your eyeballs down to verse 18 and 19 and notice how Jesus' redemptive work that is always with us does reorient us and actually sets us free from the bondage and the shackles of a cultural enslavement. Here's what Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Some of that is those futile ways of legalism. Peter's got some of that in mind, but it's also the futile ways you've inherited from your forefathers. The domestic abuse, the alcoholism, the chemical addictions. All those things you want to pile in there that you remember from the past, or maybe you heard stories from your mom about her dad, or whatever. You've been liberated, you've been ransomed in Jesus from those futile ways of your forefathers. He goes on to say, it's been done not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I can't wait till we get to this passage. i got more to say. When we get down to chapter 1, 18 and 19. And then verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Notice that God's minority people are God's minority people because we're the foreknown minority, we're the sanctified minority, we're the obedient, atoned minority. And before I go much further, because we've got to get to the end of verse 2, I want you to observe in verse 1 and 2 that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are busy in those two teeny verses. Did you notice that? The whole God, my friends, is wholly involved in saving us 
holy and making us his holy elect ones. Praise the Lord. Finally then, notice that we're the prayed up. It's that last line in verse 2. Peter ends his greeting with a prayer for God's minority people, for the elect exiles. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. My friends, this is the very kind of prayer that a minority people need. The temptation for a minority people is to become reactionary, to become vindictive, to become violent, to become vicious in their minority status. I was a minority in elementary school, actually in junior in, in, in elementary and junior high, because I was redheaded with red freckles. And I don't want to make light of others, but I'm just going to tell you, I have a smidgen of some experience here. I had to fight my way through elementary school and junior high. It probably did good for me in many ways. But it did bad. It's hard being on the receiving end as the shortest guy or one of the shorter guys in school who happens to be redheaded and freckled and can't see needs glasses. And I can tell you, it is easy to slip into the trap, the enslavement of victimization and victimhood, and then begin to become vindictive, violent, and vicious. I'm telling you that because it is a confession of sins of my childhood. It is too stinking easy as a minority people to fall into that. And if we fall into that fiery vortex, then we lose Clear and simple, we lose. We lose our way. We lose our identity. We lose our purpose. And so, dear friends, we need this prayer to freshly and freely remain God's minority people by grace. Peter didn't throw it in there just because he wanted to waste some ink on some parchment. He was praying this for God's minority people who need this prayer. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. My friends, this is, just think of it, what a prayer that is. And what a way for us to pray for one another. Think about that. 1 Peter 1, 2. Praying for one another. Dear Lord, may your grace that makes us unique and odd... And may your peace that grows our well-being be lavished on Luke, be lavished on Teresa, be lavished on Jeff, be lavished on Joe, until they burst at the seams. Amen. What a prayer. And we need it. And we need to be praying it for one another. And if you don't know anybody else to pray that for, pray for me. I'll give you a target. So my friends, there's how Peter begins this most important letter. Now I'm sure you're picking up most of what I'm putting down. But let's be a little bit more specific as we wrap this up. No matter what our social standing is, no matter what our skin color is, no matter what our political leanings are or our heritage, no matter how much we feel like we're part of this or that dominant culture, by the grace of God, 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit alone. We have been made into His God, into God's chosen, cherished colony, His select people in spite of ourselves, His precious minority. But it's too easy to slip our way into majority thinking. It's too easy to slide into majority politicking. It's too easy to slip off into majority living. But we are his exiles that he has sent into exile. And there in exile, even if it's in our own homeland, we employ our skills, thinking of Jeremiah 29, we employ our skills for the shalom of the city for where we have been exiled. We have loads of kids, even when the majority society is fearful and having less and less children. We raise our children to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, even when the majority culture is raising their children to be consumers. We buy and build homes, even when the majority is hoarding their resources. We farm and garden or whatever we do to be employed, even when the majority around us has turned from the earth to concrete, turned from the human flesh and blood to AI or whatever the case may be. But we do all these things, not as the potent and powerful. We do all these things as God's minority people, made as minority people by grace alone. And that's how we do it. And so, dear friends, we begin. Memory, manners, and mandates of God's minority people. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful you took us In spite of all the manipulative games we grew up doing and playing or or experiencing, in spite of all the things that happened behind closed doors, besides all of the lying, stealing, whatever, whatever we were doing, you came in and you made us your minority people by grace. We've been made your minority people by your foreknowledge. Thank you, Lord, that you've always known us and cherished us. That's amazing. Major minority people in the sanctification of the Spirit. Major minority people, the obedient and atoned people. Lord, reorient us who we are so that we will always remember who we are and how we got here. That we may be those, be those who do display and declare your excellencies to all of those around us. And may we be those who are praying up people, praying for one another. And so, Lord, I do pray for us, each and every one. May grace and peace be multiplied to us. In Jesus' name, amen.